I feel like we could all go home right now. It is well with my soul. I mean, are you not there? Do you not have, okay. So good. But you know, in our everyday life, sometimes this particular fruit of peace is more elusive than we might imagine. It certainly was for Lieutenant Hiro Onada. He and three other Japanese soldiers were dropped off on Lubang Island in the Philippines on December 25, 1944. Their mission was simple. Keep fighting, even if Japan surrenders. And they did, for years. Until one man finally surrendered in 1950. Another was killed by local police in 1954, and a third in 1972. Onada still fought on. The locals actually tried everything to uh, get him to surrender or to capture him. They actually sent uh, loud blasting announcements across the loudspeakers that went throughout their island saying, the war is over. <laughs> um, Japan is now an ally of the US. They even dropped paper leaflets all over the jungle trying to convince him that peace had come to the land, but he refused to believe that peace was his. Over the years, he lived off the land and he uh, raided people's farms and their gardens. They actually hired 13,000 individuals to hunt him down. And they spent over, or actually almost, I should say, a half a million dollars to capture him. Finally, on March 10th, 1974, almost 30 years after the war was over, he surrendered. And he would only surrender because he got a direct ceasefire order from his former superior officer. And that's when he handed his rusty sword over to President Marcos, surrendering. Peace was fully and finally his. You know, Onada was 22 years old when he got dropped off there. And he was 52 when he surrendered. Peace had been his. Peace had been sitting right in front of him, available for 30 years. But he didn't take it. Why? I mean, what was the problem? What was going on with that? I mean, it wasn't that it wasn't available. It wasn't that he didn't know it. It was clearly and loudly proclaimed to him. He just didn't believe it. So he wouldn't grasp onto it. Now, if you're a real child of God here, his peace is already yours. You have received it. The most important kind, the peace of God, is yours. You're now a child of God in his family forever. That will never change. But there are layers and layers of peace that he wants you to enjoy while you live life on this planet. Not just being his kid, but he wants you to experience this fruit. We're going to explore three different kinds of this fruit today. Each point is going to be a new kind of peace. And these are kinds of peace that Christians should enjoy all throughout their life. We don't want to be like Onada and leave this precious gift sitting on the table and not enjoy what God actually gave us along with his ultimate peace. But if you don't yet have God's peace, 
today's the day. Now is the time. You can have your sins wiped away, every single one of them. Doesn't matter if you thought you were a Christian before you got here. Right this minute, you can have every sin wiped away. If you would just surrender, like Onada finally did, if you would surrender and turn from your life of hopelessness and sin and grab onto the forgiveness that he offers in the broken body of Christ. It can be yours right this second. That's it. You just tell God that right there. I want to turn from my life. I want to trust you. I'm going to follow you from now on. And you would get this initial peace that most of us here enjoy today, right this minute, because we're children of God forever because he gave us that peace. And he promises in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified or made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can have that right now. But there is more peace, like I said, that he wants you to have. Don't miss out on this precious and yet sometimes elusive (laughs) peace. Not sure what's going on here, but okay. Now, obviously, at a retreat like this, we're going to be laying out some fertilizer, right? We're going to be throwing down the fertilizer. We're going to be watering. We're going to be pulling weeds, right? We're even going to be pruning things off of your life. We did that yesterday, surely, morning and evening. Woo, a lot of pruning. And I'm going to tell you, there's going to be some pruning today, too. You got to cut some stuff off that's keeping you from growing in this fruit of peace. The question is, if you already get and you already have his initial peace, why do you not yet possess some of the daily peace that he wants to provide to you? I'm going to have you write the point, and then I'll explain it. Point number one is be at peace with God. Be at peace with God. Be at peace with God. But wait, I thought I already had that. Yes, you do. Um, And you don't. You may already be a child of God, but you may not be at peace with God. I thought it was a one-time thing. It is a one-time thing, and it's not a one-time thing. Hmm. You see, Christ made us positionally right before him when we surrendered. We did what Onada did finally. But um, every single day, even the very next hour after you did that, you began to be tempted to do things that would offend God, hurt God, and make distance between you and God. Even that first moment after your conversion, And you began to make decisions that were not necessarily good. You did things that hurt God. You did things that were against God from that moment on. Sometimes accidentally and sometimes flat out on purpose. And you know it. And we all do it. You look at the people in the Bible. Even your greatest heroes in the Bible made decisions and sinned. You can think of their names. Go through the Bible in your head. Okay? Noah, Moses, Job, David. They all made bad decisions and sinned and offended God by what they did, even though they had peace with God. Um, Would you, would any of you volunteer to have the whole last week of your life put on the screen for everybody to see here? Every thought, every word, every action, even what you've done since you've come to retreat. Anybody want to volunteer? No, because we all know that we don't have peace with God in every single moment that we have failed him. We will not be sinless, of course, until we get to the new Jerusalem, until we get to the other side. But until then, even through weekends like this, which is what makes them so important, you're going to get encouragement and you're going to get tools to help you sin less. And I know you guys are the poster children. I mean, I want you to go home and talk about retreat. And we need to have more women here next time. They're missing out on getting 
tools to stuff into their tool belt to sin less because they're not here. But we're going to work on being at peace with God, and I'm going to have you turn to the first passage. But remember I said we're using the whole Bible, so we might at any point pull out your, your sword. So get it out. Second Peter 3 is where we're going to start to talk about be at peace with God. It's going to give us the motivation we need. Now, if there was anyone who's familiar, ooh, familiar with sinning and being restored, it was Peter, right? I mean, come on, the guy denied Christ. Not once. Okay, that would be bad enough if your sin of denial of Christ was written in the Bible and you did it once, you'd feel really bad. Twice, oh, you'd be, you know, I want to climb under the table. Three times, I might as well pack and leave, right? And it's right up next to the most selfless act in history, recorded in the Gospels, like in almost the same chapter as the resurrection or the crucifixion in all the Gospels, right? I mean, this is bad. Okay, so if anybody knows about sinning and being restored, the guy who wrote this book right here, he gets it, okay? So in 2 Peter, he's writing to Christians that he wants to make sure know how to get right with God and have peace with him. He says in 2 Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Okay, that sounds like a good thing, but I need some explanation. I have no idea what that just said. Okay, First, I want you to notice that he's talking, he says, beloved. That means he's talking to Christians here. These are people who are dearly loved by the Lord. Therefore, beloved. He goes, then, since you are waiting. Okay, what are they waiting for? Well, in 2 Peter, he's just talked about how the whole world was wiped out by water last time. And how next time it's going to be wiped out by fire. But he doesn't want them to be hopeless and without peace. So he reassures them by saying, but I am making a place for you. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. That's what they're waiting for. You're waiting for this, a new heavens and a new earth. It's giving you hope, okay? And so he says, I want you to be diligent or work hard. That's what diligent means, work hard to be found when he comes back without spot or blemish. He is urging them to live holy, make right choices, do good, sin less, all of those things while you're waiting for Christ to come back. He's saying, we want Jesus to catch you doing good when he walks through the door. We want you to sin less while you're waiting for him to show up because he's coming, right? It reminds me of Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards, you may know, wrote those 70 resolutions. What you may not know, and that resolutions, they kind of like were the direction of his life. In other words, this is the, these are my goals. This is how I want to live my life. Those were his 70 resolutions. He wrote them when he was only 18 years old. He actually became a pastor that year. I'm not sure if he had started some or not, but he actually wrote them because he wanted to shape the way and the kind of pastor he was going to be. And he wanted his life to count. He said this at the beginning of his life, I want my life to count so that when I live my life, I live for something that matters. So he wrote these 70 resolutions. And if you read them, you'll find that um, a lot of them are pointing to this waiting and this, the day that Jesus comes. He wants them to focus and live right. He wants himself to focus and live right for that day. And I'm going to give you just one example, number seven, which I think he, he nails it right here about living right for Jesus' soon return. He says he has resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. 18 years old, 
This is before sinners in the hand of the angry God, before the great awakening. He's a kid. But he says, I'm going to be resolved to never do anything which I would be afraid to do if it was the last hour of my life. Because he wanted to be ready. He wanted to live ready. He wanted to be caught doing good and living holy. And he had it right, of course. We know that. And it reminds us when, you know, you were a kid and your parents somehow, you you knew they were on their way home, right? You looked at the clock. You went, they'll be here in 10 minutes. Okay. What did you do? You popped up out of your seat. I don't care what you were doing or what age you are. You popped up out of your seat and you quickly put the dishes in the dishwasher or you wash them by hand, depending on who you are in this room. And you fed the dog and you picked up all the whatever junk you had out and you ran over your backpack, you unzipped it, and you sat at the kitchen table and opened your books. Because they were driving in the driveway, right? All of us did it. Even the goody two-shoes in the room, we still did it. Like me, I have to say. Okay, that is what Peter and Jonathan Edwards is trying to help us remember. He wants us to live without spot and blemish because Jesus is coming soon. And he's going to walk in the door any minute. So we want to be at peace with God when he walks in, don't we? This reminds me of 1 John 3, 1 to 3. When we think about him coming back, a lot of us go to this verse. It's so good. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And then verse 2 says, beloved, we are God's children now, but what we shall be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. But most people stop right there. I want to read you verse 3. You're all excited. Woohoo! He's coming back. I'm going to be different. I'm going to see him as he is. Yes. Verse 3 says, And everyone who who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What does it motivate you to do that you're going to be like him? Be pure now. It motivates you to be holy today because he's walking in the door. So we want you to stay at peace with him by doing right things right now. There's only two for this point, but the first thing is you need to avoid sin. I mean, how are you going to, you want to be ready when he walks in and and not be all snarled up with sin. You got to avoid sin. That's all there is to it. That means you got to choose right over wrong. You get to fight temptation learn verses, I don't know, whatever it is, hang out with good godly people, whatever it takes for you to avoid sin, avoid sin. This reminds me of a gal who complained one time to her friend that somehow, I thought this was funny when Stephanie was talking about it last night, but somehow this girl says, I've lost my joy and my peace with the Lord. That's what she told her friend. And her, her friend said, oh, well, what's, what was happening in your life when that was going on? She's like, oh, it's not important. But I just want you to help me find this joy and peace again. <laughs> it's okay. My phone does that, or my watch does that all the time. I'm waiting for it to go off. Hi. No. <laughs> anyway, where was I? I totally was. Oh, yes, the girl. She lost her joy and her peace. I sound like Pastor Mike. Um, <laughs> I love him, but it is funny to see this moment happen, you know? So now it happened to me. All right. Third time. Let me make sure where I was. Okay. Lost her joy and peace. She says, oh, it doesn't matter, right? Okay. And her friend goes, no, it really does. And she pressed her. And she said, tell me what was happening in your life when you noticed this distance between you and God. And she was like, oh, well, 
The first time I noticed it is when I moved in with my boyfriend. You see, sin is the number one reason that you're going to lose your joy and your peace. So avoid sin. As simple as that. Okay, you're like, that sounds simple, but it's really hard. I know, it's hard. So come to things like this and it will help you. All right. No matter how hard it is, we have to remember we have the Holy Spirit to help us avoid sin. And we also have the Holy Spirit because, just like Stephanie reminded us, and you all know because you live in the real world, there are going to be days when you are living in the deeds of the flesh. There's going to be hours and moments when you choose that, even though you know the fruit of the Spirit. What are you going to do then? Well, we love John, 1 John 1, 9, and we should love 1 John 1, 9 because it's the secret to it all, and it says that we should confess our sins because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you find you have not avoided sin, then you number two, confess sin, or A, B, whatever you want to call it. Avoid sin, confess sin. That's it. That's all there is to being at peace with God when he walks in the door. Avoid sin and confess sin. On the cross, he paid for our forgiveness from last week and last year and actually from next month. He paid for it all there, so go to him and get cleaned up. Just slide your debit card, right? It's the, the, the payment's already there. The forgiveness is already there. Slide the debit card. It doesn't mean that we're just going to go crazy, right? And we're just going to go buy everything we want. Or we're going to go sin all we want because we can slide the debit card, right? Romans 6.1 tells us don't do that. No, no, no. We don't keep sinning just because God is gracious and he keeps offering us forgiveness. Don't do that. No way, no how. That girl should not have been doing that. No wonder her peace. I mean, it's a gift from God that her peace and joy disappeared because it woke her up to go to her friend and get some help, right? If we've turned from sin when we got saved, don't go back to it again. Keep your peace with God. Avoid sin, confess sin. And then commit yourself that you're going to move forward without doing it again. Going back to letter A, I'm going to avoid sin. After I confess it, I'm going to avoid it again right? I'm going to keep going back. As my husband says, it only takes a minute to get right with God. Do it. Even right now, you, you got something in your mind? It just takes a second. God, forgive me. I messed up. You can talk to him more about it later. It's not easy to stay at peace. That's why Peter is going to urge us to make every effort to be diligent. That actually word, that, that word actually means be quick about it, be eager. Try not to offend God. Work hard every day. You're never going to be perfect on earth, but work hard every day. And one of the really encouraging things in Second, six, excuse me, First John two, First John two, is it says that Jesus is our advocate; that He's actually sitting on the throne in heaven. And when He finds out that we've messed up, He says, "She's mine. I forgave her. She's clean. She she gets passed because I paid for her sin." And he's sitting there right now doing that for us. How encouraging is that? Okay. I'm actually surprised this passage didn't come up in our weekend, so I'm glad I got to do it. But Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is a very important one to remember when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit because it says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to do that. It's interesting because this is the place that we see both our work and his at the same time. You're going to work to avoid sin and confess your sin, but his Holy Spirit is right there with you. He's going to assist you. 
you're going to cooperate with him and his word, and, and you're going to work together. But you got to keep doing it every day because we want to welcome Jesus with a smile on our face before we hit the ground in worship. We do not want to be shrinking away or embarrassed if he was to walk in the door in 20 minutes. That's why I hope you did confess your sin if God brought something to your mind. You don't want to be embarrassed. You always want to be ready. And Jesus talked about this a lot. One of the places was in Luke 12. Luke 12, 35 to 37 says this, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed or happy are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So live ready and do that by being at peace with God, okay? First kind of peace. That's the first bucket we need to strive for. But the next one is, I bet, the one you probably expected me to put in, and here it is. We're going to have to work on peace, living at peace with other people, right? That's going to be the whole next second bucket. We got peace with him. Now we're going to talk about peace with each other. It reminds me of a Phoenix cartoon that I saw the other day where Lucy says to Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate everyone. I hate the whole world. And uh, Charlie Brown says, wait, I I thought you had inner peace. And she says, I do have inner peace, but I also have outer obnoxiousness. (laughs) Right? We all got some of that, don't we? And so does everybody else at your table and lives at your house and drives on the freeways, right? We all have some outer obnoxiousness. How are we going to live at peace with each other when everyone's bumping their outer obnoxiousness? Well, um, we're going to turn to Ephesians 4 for this one because here God is going to give us a little bit more um, of a prescription of how to live at peace with others. There's going to be four things here, and they are not my list. They're God's, so I wasn't responsible for this one. Um, This is so important that Jesus prayed for us to have this in his high priestly prayer before he went to the cross in John 17, he prayed that we would be one, not just his disciples, but that we, those that would come after him, would be one. This is important for us to be united with each other. Ephesians 4 is going to give us some specific help. Verse 1, Paul begins, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Ooh, that is so good. And it's just the prescription we need to get this down. We want to get and we want to maintain peace with each other. So we're going to point number two, put it like this. Let's all be at peace. Let's all be at peace. Let's all be at peace. God expects us not just to live holy lives with him, but to live holy lives with each other. So he wants to help us do that here. I bet some of you in the room right now are not living in peace with some other people in this room right now. Sadly. They've irked you. They've bothered you. They've hurt you. Some of them have flat out rejected you. And now you sit on the opposite side of the room from them. You go to a different service. You go to a different Bible study. You complain about them to your friends and you don't invite them to your events and some of you do much worse than that. Because not everybody here is living at peace even right this minute with each other. We want to work on that. Jesus wants us to be one. How can we be one when we're completely different though? I mean, 
that lady is just not like me, and I know I'm right. Okay, well, that's part of the problem right there. <laughs> Ephesians 4 tells us we need to live in a manner that is worthy. Live in a manner that's worthy. Um, to live in a manner that's worthy, it's interesting. The commentators say it's like a balance scale. Stephanie and I, you guys always laugh, but we literally don't talk about this. And then there it is. Living a life worthy is that balance scale. You know, where you put some on one side and some on the other and try to balance it out. This is taking all your actions, thoughts, and words and balancing them with your claim of being a Christian. They should be balanced in the same. Shouldn't be claiming to be a Christian and then your actions don't show it, right? Can't be like the dry cleaner, right? Nobody's going to be like the hour dry cleaner anymore. Verse 2 says we live a life that's worthy. And it consists of humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. That's the four action steps. Let's look at them one at a time. Humility. To live at peace with others, we have to be humble. And the best definition that I can come up with humility is Philippians 2.3. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. In other words, don't do anything to promote yourself, to get ahead, to be the one who is special and has everything they want. Do nothing from that. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. To be humble, according to Pastor Mike and C.S. Lewis, who said it first, by the way, I looked it up. <laughs> Not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. Humility is to not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. Being humble in the first century was no more popular than it is in the 21st century. It's, it's bad either way. Humility actually was a word that they, the Greeks hated because what it meant was to be a slave. And what do you picture with a slave? The guy rowing in the bottom of the, of the boat, right? It's a guy who's completely subservient to a master. That's what it means to be humble. And you're like, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for that. I mean, you're going to blow me off at this point. I'm woman, I'm strong, I don't submit to anyone because then you're going to be a doormat. Okay, well, that's, the problem is that Jesus said you're supposed to be humble. Will you be humble for him? Will you submit to the interests and needs and desires and opinions of others for him? Because he asks you to? I hope so. We give up our rights and our opinions and our interests for the sake of others. That's humility. Now, of course, we know Jesus was the best example, and you can quickly go to Philippians 2, right? He humbled himself by being a man and by dying on the cross. But you do realize that he humbled himself every day of his life, not the day he, just the day he was born and the day he died, which that's what Philippians 2 talks about. All the days of his life, he was submitted to the Father. He was born in a stable, ladies, now, we, we picture that wooden thing, you know, and the stars over and that. Okay, but it was probably a cave, a stinky cave where animals did all their business. He was also born to the teenager. How do you feel about teenagers? A lot of you don't feel like you've got something you could learn from them, which is not true, but you think that. He was born to a teenage girl. That was submission. The God of the universe was born to your high school girl. 
Mm-hmm. That's submission. He also, at 12 years old, was wowing everyone in the temple with his amazing knowledge, and then he walked home behind Mary and Joseph and lived with them for the rest of his childhood. As an adult, he ministered, went all around, had all these people, was really famous. He didn't have a home. You have a home? You have some place you're going after this, right? He didn't have a home. And I see that you're all wearing different clothes, except maybe the sweatshirt. You're all wearing different clothes than when I was up here. He didn't have a second set of clothes. He didn't have a tomb to be buried in. He submitted every day of his life to the Father. He said, not my will, but yours be done in prayer to God. And then when the disciples didn't want to wash people's feet, he did it for them. He put people's interests above his own every day of his life. If Jesus did it, it's not being a doormat. It's being honorable and excellent and obedient. Humility means we give up our pride, which, by the way, is the source of every conflict that we ever have. We give it up to live peacefully. The next thing Ephesians 4 says to grow in peace with others that we need is gentleness. Now, gentleness is possessing strength, but always being under control. It's possessing strength, but always being under control. Um, It means that you don't get angry and assertive for just anything. You actually are only angry and assertive if there's a godly, eternal, and righteous purpose. That's why Jesus got angry and assertive. He got angry and assertive at the hypocritical Pharisees, and he got angry and assertive when a swap meet showed up at the temple because they were using it wrongly. That's when we see Jesus get angry and assertive. Being gentle is like a horse, a horse that's harnessed. Let's just picture it. You're watching one of those rom-coms and you see a horse that's attached to a carriage that's taking a couple through Central Park, right? See it in your mind? Okay, that's gentleness. Because when they unhook the bit and bridle, that horse is then free to run and kick and frolic and do whatever when it gets out in the fields and it gets out in its corral or whatever with the other horses. But when it's walking through Central Park, it's controlled. It's sedate. That horse is strong. Could he hurt you? Absolutely. Could he back you? Sure he could. But he's under control. He's strapped in there. That's what it is to be gentle. (laughs) Um, Who was gentle when the soldiers came to get Jesus? Was it Peter? Right? And you're going to take his ear off. I guess you wouldn't do that. That's his head. Take this. So anyway. (laughs) I didn't think about how my sword was going there, but take his ear off. Or was it Jesus who said, friend, do what it is that you came to do and didn't resist, just walked behind him as they arrested him? Who was gentle? Would you call Jesus a doormat? I don't think you would. (laughs) To have peaceful relationships, actually the Bible talks about gentleness a lot. And I'm going to give you, and I'm going through them really fast, don't worry. I'm going to give you five biblical references of times in relationship you need to be gentle. The first one's Galatians 6.1. It basically says if you find your sister in sin, you've got to go help her, but you need to be gentle when you do it. 2 Timothy 2.25 says that leaders are supposed to be gentle as they deal with people who are arguing with them and opposing them. They're supposed to handle it with gentleness. 1 Peter 3.15 
It says we're supposed to do our evangelism with gentleness. You're not supposed to smack them over the head. Come on, be a Christian. Yeah, yeah. No, you're supposed to do it with gentleness, with strength under control. This is probably my favorite verse on gentleness. It's Proverbs 15.1. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If you could have this and live it every day of your life, in your home, in traffic, in a long line at Starbucks, and in the church, a gentle, soft answer turns away wrath. And then, of course, the last one Stephanie mentioned last night, 1 Peter 3, 4. It says that every godly woman should make as her goal for her life that she would have a gentle and a quiet spirit. Gentleness encourages peace. It leads to greater unity and sanctification, and it pleases the Lord. It's precious in his sight, he says. This is a win-win-win, gentleness. All right, the next element as we strive for peace found in Ephesians 4 is patience. This is that same word we looked at yesterday, macrothumia, means a long fuse or a long um, tempered. And there is no doubt you need patience when it comes to pursuing peace because you have to be willing to give up any offense (laughs) and let it go. We talked about this yesterday. There is no keeping track, not on paper, not in your mind, not electronically. My advice to you would be to delete it all. There's no need for you to hang on to that text thread or that email or that nasty note. Why? Is it seriously doing you any good to do that? No, it's just stirring up in you. Frustration. How dare she? Look what I've done for her. Right? It's not good. Whatever debt you think that person owes you, you need to let it go. And as Pastor Mike says, you need to let it go like this. Both hands, palms down. Why palms down? Because you can't grab it back up again. It's gone. That thing, gravity is your friend. (laughs) Gravity is your friend and you go like this and it falls away from you. Whatever it is. I don't know what it is, but you know what it is that someone has done to you. And some people will say, yeah, but don't I get to tell them how they've hurt me? I know that's what our world says, and I know that's what you say to each other. But why? Do you have any biblical precedent for that? Just tell them how you feel. Vent. Come on, they should know what they did to hurt you. That's my right. Why? Jesus never did. He never did. He was reviled and he said nothing in return and he was completely innocent. Why do we feel it's one of our rights to tell people how they've hurt us? But they should know so they don't do it with other people. Well, you don't be the avenue of telling them. You be the godly one. Let some other person in their life do that and pray. I mean, do you not think that prayer would do more than you saying, you hurt me? Now, some of you are going to go, but wait, but, but, but. There are exceptions. Absolutely. Do not leave here and think that I said you never, ever say anything, ever. If it's dangerous, if it's illegal, you better get a police officer involved. You better get the courts involved. You better get a pastor involved. But those are the exceptions Most of what you deal with the people in this room, they should not be arrested for. (laughs) 
if they should, we have really big problems that we need to go address right away. Nine times out of 10, what you're dealing with does not land in that category. And what happens when you vent? Well, for one thing, you might have lost that sister forever. And all you've done is feel justified in your own heart. For what? When Jesus is the one who justifies you, not you. Sorry, got off on that. And if it's about your husband, it's not illegal, it's not dangerous. A few years back, we did Esther. Anybody here for Esther? I told you one way to do this is to do what we call an Esther banquet. I don't have time. I'm going to be talking for three hours. Go back and listen to Esther. But an Esther banquet is how do you set the scene to be honest with your husband about something that needs to be discussed that's important. Go back and do that. You don't need to share anything. You can seek out a godly mentor, counselor, or pastor. But 99 times out of 100, you need to let it go just like this. Being patient also means you never retaliate. Romans 12, 16 to 18. I'm just going to give you snippets of this, but 16 says you live in harmony. 17 says you never repay anyone for evil for evil, but you give thought to what's honorable in the sight of all. And 18 says, if possible, as long as it depends on you, you live peaceably with all. Patience is the key to living at peace with other people and fostering peace. It accepts whatever comes with grace. Of course, Jesus did this perfectly, right? We know that. He never defended himself, and he always was long-suffering. It is so much easier to extend this patience to others when you remember and keep going over in your brain what God has given you patience with in your life. How many times has he forgiven you for that sin? Could you extend that kind of patience to someone else? I bet you could. Ephesians 4 then says we need to bear with each other, or we need to endure we spent a while on this yesterday in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. It's hanging in there, never turning your back on a sister. It's called forbearing also. Um, this is making allowances for others' faults and differences and weaknesses. Um, I know this is a touchy subject, but since we're at retreat, it's time to touch one of those. That is, this, th what lands in this category is our just continual pattern of church hopping. I mean, you have to commit yourself to one body. I don't care if it's here. I mean, of course, I'd love for it to be here, Compass Bible Church, but if it isn't, then it's okay. Plant yourself somewhere in some church and stop hopping around. Spend your life there. Spend your gifts there. Spend your money there. Root your children there. Every time you change churches, not only do you uproot them socially from every friend that you're depending on to help keep them from sin and bad choices, but you're also making them start over with all the people who love and care and have invested in them in kids ministry and youth ministry. That mentor, that leader has been pouring into your child, loves your child, cares about your child, and actually knows where your child's in sin. And when you root, rip them out, you have just made them start ground zero again. And frankly, you've started at ground zero too because you have no one who really knows you or holds you accountable. It's wrong. Even if it's not here, stay in the church you're in. And you know what you have to do to stay in that church? You have to endure and you have to be forbearing. And you have to give that pastor or that leader or that small group, the person in your small group, the benefit of the doubt instead of bailing on them and the whole church when you feel offended. Okay. So you're humble, you're gentle, you're patient, you're hanging in there. And that's what makes it possible to, verse number three, be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit of the bond of peace. To be eager is that same word diligent from the last point. You work hard at it. And this is the element of you work quickly to keep peace. 
in Ephesians 4, 3. Okay, you be the one who diffuses the conflict. You be the one that gives the person the benefit of the doubt. You be the one that lets things go and encourages everyone else to do the same. Be that person in your friend group. We're all going to be neighbors in the New Jerusalem. Could be tomorrow. Could be 30 years. I don't know. So many things are just not that important, especially 100 years from now, right? doesn't matter. We need to be flexible. We need to be flexible in everything but doctrine. If it's doctrine, if it's the gospel, if it's the word of God, you can't be flexible there, but be flexible everywhere else. It reminds me of a crew team, a crew team from the University of Washington, and nobody expected this crew, that's rowing, nobody expected this crew team to win anything. Uh, they weren't from Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. They were from the University of Washington. And they took these kids from farms and logging towns. But in 1936, something amazing happened. And a crew team for the University of Washington won the 1936 gold medal at the Olympics for their crew team. And experts say it's because they had eight individuals of varying statures, physiques, and personalities. And they capitalized on their diversity because everybody wasn't the same. In fact, they said if they had all been alphas, they would have, you know, degenerated into a brawl in the boat. <laughs> had they all been introverts, there wouldn't have been enough drive to get them through the finish line. They had to take eight individuals. They said they had eight distinct individuals. Someone who led the charge and someone who held something back in reserve till the last minute. Someone who picked a fight, someone who made peace. Someone who thought things through and someone who charged ahead without thinking. All those people were in the boat with them, right? We need the right mix of people. It's great when the row team, the crew team has it. I think it's even better when the church has it. And we have it. We have people of all different strengths and weaknesses and proclivities. And just it makes such a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. And our church benefits when all of us are rowing together, trying to fill up, okay, this boat instead of bus, right? We're going to fill up this boat and we're going to get out of here. Let's just all do what we're supposed to do. Paul says we need to do all four of these, and we need to willingly tolerate the differences of others, basically. Now, there are lots of biblical examples. I told you I was going to give a biblical example of peacemaking. This one, I'd like to remind you of the person Abraham. Abraham in Genesis 13, um, they had left Egypt. You don't have to turn there. They had left Egypt, and there was a famine going on, so they went to Egypt for food. They came back, and he had his whole family, and he had Lot, his nephew, and what happened is verse 2 tells us he was super rich and he had lots of stuff. And Lot's family and his family were together and Lot's shepherds and his shepherds were together, Abraham's shepherd. And what happened is those shepherds started clashing because there was just too many animals. They were basically crowded and on top of each other. And you can imagine what that would be like as they left Egypt. So at one point, Abraham comes up with a solution. He says, we're going to spread out all across the promised land. Now that we're back, let's spread out. And I don't know, I, I picture them being on a hillside looking out over the land. I don't know if that was the case, but that's what I picture. And he brings his nephew Lot up next to him. And I want you to remember who Abraham was. He was his uncle. He was his older relative. He was the leader of the family. And he was a guy who talked to God regularly. And Abraham says to young Lot you know what? We just shouldn't be fighting. You just look over the land here and you pick what you want. Where do you want to go? I'll go someplace else. And you know, sadly, young, punky, immature lot, 
He says, I'll take the best. And he literally says that. I'll take the best part. I'm going to go over there. I'll take the best part. Abraham's like, cool. Awesome. No problem. And he takes the less desirable place. See, because Abraham was committed to being a peacemaker. He wasn't selfish. He was all these things. This passage says he was humble. He was patient, right? He, he did all of that. And the cool thing is God meets up with Abraham later and says, don't worry. I'm going to give it all to you later anyway. <laughs> Ladies, we want to make peace when God asks us to, and we need to not pass on those nasty texts, emails, or conversations that are going to sow seeds of discord with your sisters. We need to not listen to those complaints. We need to redirect them instead with the word of God or going to a pastor or to the person that's being complained about. Hey, have you said this to her yet? We need to not participate in giving someone the cold shoulder because your friend wants to. We need to pray for peace and work for peace, and it's not going to be easy. I bet it wasn't for easy for Abraham to take the less desirable land, but he did it, right? It's not going to be pleasant for us either. When divisiveness happens right in front of you, though, you have to do something probably a little more direct, okay? You need to pray. I know that sounds like, oh, it's Cardland, pray. Yeah, you need to pray. When it drops in your lap and there's no, like, redirecting it, you need to pray hard because you're stuck there and you got to do something with it. God is way more powerful than you are. He has much better ways of persuading people um, and he can work it out. And you know, oh, that's all you do? No, but he's the one with the power, not you. I don't care what your scheme is. He's more powerful. Um, you need to trust him and pray. It's obviously a fruit of the spirit, which means he's got to do the peacemaking, but sometimes he's going to ask you to assist. So you pray for peace, you pray for your sister who's in the wrong, you pray for God to show her sin, you pray for the situation to be worked out, you pray for your involvement, you pray, 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 pray about all of it. And then if you have a relationship and it's dropped in your lap, you very gently, like as Galatians 6.1 says, kindly, carefully go and confront the sin in the person's life. You have to. It's part of your responsibility to the body of Christ. You don't just rush in there. Pray, 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 pray. Like weeks, if you, if you can, if you have time, pray, pray, pray. Okay. We got peace with God and we got peace with others. But there is one more place that the sisters that I interact with every day, including all y'all, really need peace. And it's in here, right? There's a place in here that every single one of us needs peace. We need a tranquil and a quiet heart. We are running around desperately anxious and worried about all kinds of things. But right here, we need to maintain a peaceful heart. And that's point number three. Let's maintain a peaceful heart. The most wonderful thing is that God promises you a peaceful heart in the text we're going to look at now. He is going to give it to you, a heart that overflows with peace. We're going to go to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Stephanie went there last night. We're going to go there again today. I know you know it. I know it's super familiar, but it's also super helpful. And I want you to look at it this time with your mindset on, I want peace in my heart, because that's what we're looking at this for, maintaining peace in our heart. Okay? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Super clear. Couldn't be more clear, really. It says, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. It's really all it says in a nutshell. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. And it is a command, not a suggestion again. It's an order. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful of the way your children are growing up in this culture. Don't be afraid of paying your mortgage, keeping your job, finding a husband. Don't be afraid about getting sick. A lot of people are really afraid about getting sick. Don't be anxious about the state of our nation. You're commanded in this passage not to do any of that stuff. It seems impossible. How could that be? Well, it is possible if we do this. You want to be a doer of the word? Even if it seems unattainable, it's God's word and it promises you a peaceful heart. So let's do what it says. This is a fruit of the spirit that he's going to work in you if you would cooperate with him. The passage is really clear. Don't pray. Don't pray. Don't pray about anything. <laughs> Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything, right? It's so clear, but it really is that simple. No matter what you're facing, it really is that simple. I don't care, big or small, silly or unimportant, you need to go to God and talk to him about it. If it's threatening your peace, you talk to him about it. Not your best girlfriend, not your husband, whatever. It threatens your peace, you talk to him about it. And there are actually three words for prayer here. He's trying to remind us, pray, pray, pray. I'm going to tell you three different ways I want you to pray. The first word for prayer is that general word for prayer. And this word means going to God, going to God, going before God. And it includes all the ways we pray. It includes things like confession. We've already talked about it. It includes worship. It includes asking for stuff. And it includes thanking him. That first word for prayer is this big word for prayer all over the Bible. But what I want it to remind you of is that you're approaching God. You know, we just rush in like it's no big deal, like I'm talking to any of you, which I love you, but it's different. It should be different. When I talk to the God of the universe, I'm rushing into him and this is who I'm talking to. Okay. The second word for prayer here is supplication. And that means that I go in before God and I talk to him about what concerns me. I get real with him. I pour my heart out with the things that are bugging me, hurting me, scaring me. And then the third one is requests. All three of these words are in the passage. You can see them clearly. A request is the specific thing that you need or want. Three words for prayer. He's trying to make us pray comprehensively and not just bip in and bip out of his presence. Okay. Now he says, when you're worried, you should go to God. You should pour your heart out to him and tell him what you want. He is the God of the universe. But the cool thing is, you know what he also is? He's your father. Matthew 7, 7 to 11, we won't turn there, but I want to remind you, it says to ask, seek, and knock. And it says he'll hear you. And he says he's such a good dad that when you ask for bread, he doesn't give you a rock, right? He gives you 
what you need. He may not give you everything you want, but he gives you what you need. And he says he's, he knows how to give good gifts to you, but he also can give you the best gift of all, which is the Holy Spirit. Exactly what we're studying this weekend. That's the best gift of all that we get the third person of the Godhead living inside of us. He's your dad. Go to him with everything you fear. And let's face it, some of us resist this command. We would much rather stew in our uncertainty. We would much rather strategize because we are strong, smart women. And frankly, we would much rather sell tickets to our misery, to our family and our friends, than follow this command of God. We're so busy trying to fix the problem that we don't have time to pray. But I want to amend that because it's not really that you don't have time to pray, right? It's that you don't pray. You got to go pray. You don't take the time to pray. Or if you do take the time to pray, it's half-hearted. You rush in, you spend a couple minutes so you can check the box or so that you can tell somebody you prayed. You don't go there because you actually expect God to do something, which is so sad. How sad is that from God's perspective? You're just coming in so you can go, I did it. I tried that. I tried what she said. It's an obligatory prayer and not a relationship. If we could just switch up the minutes that you're anxious and worried with the minutes you actually pray, we would change this whole room and our church. It would be amazing. Just think of your friend Martha in the Bible. I don't know why I was so stupid, but I just never really thought about that Martha's problem was anxiety until this time. I don't know. You know, you run through her story and you think, oh, you totally sympathize with Martha, don't you? I mean, come on. She's having 13 people to dinner. That would be really hard. And one of them is Jesus. I mean, we just don't, we don't think about it as being like anxiety. Have you thought about that? That was her problem. Anxiety was her problem. Okay. Now imagine, put yourself in her shoes you're having 13 people for dinner next week. Okay, I can put myself in those shoes because I was in those shoes last week. Okay, it wasn't Jesus. <laughs> I wish it was Jesus. But beloved Pastor Mike says, I would like to have Al and, Mal- Al and Mary Moeller over for dinner at our house, Carlin, and I'd like you to cook dinner. Oh, I I was like, you know, I tried to be all cool about it. I wasn't though. I just asked Stephanie. Um, I tried to be all cool about it when he told me his plan to have Alan Mary Moeller over. That means my three kids, their two spouses, the two of us, the four grandkids under two, and Alan Mary Moeller sitting at my dining room table having chili. This was going to be something for me. Now, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit to you that I was massively stressed. And um, see, I can host. I'm actually, only because of practice, I'm actually fairly good at hosting. I do it a lot, but I always order in. (laughs) The cooking thing is what messes me up. Um, My mom and my grandmother, and actually my sister, they're all great cooks, so it's not that I didn't have the training. Okay, I had it. It just didn't stick with me. And... um, It's something I'm super unconfident. I'm not confident about at all. Somehow to get all the food to turn out right for once and on the table and all the different things and hot, that was going to be a rough gig for me. Um, 
But he asked me to do this. I'm like, okay, can't we order Las Golondrinas? <laughs> and, you know, and uh, it just, I really want you to cook. <laughs> okay. This was last week, mind you. When everybody at my house, by the way, was going down with the stomach flu. It's kind of ironic. Okay, except me, praise the Lord. So, um, <laughs> so there I am, all of a sudden, reeling, realizing at that point that I'm being just like Martha. Because, like, the first few days, I was like, my throat was tied. I was waking up in the middle of the night, figuring out, what should I cook? What's the best? I have, like, three things that always turn out. So I, I pick one of those. And... Um, I was planning grocery shopping and all this, seven days out, that's about how much time I had, and it totally threw me. And I wanted everything to be perfect, right? Just like you would if it was you. And um, I'm not gonna lie, I was full of anxiety, right? In God's sovereignty, I was preparing this message. Guess what point I was on? <laughs> this point. Maintain a peaceful heart. When God went, um, hello, have you prayed about this, Martha? And I had to admit, doy, what, I did all this planning and no praying. And I am grateful to tell you that God actually allowed me to have the two by four hit my brain three days before the dinner. <laughs> so I actually got to pray and set the planning aside, and on day three, and day two, and day one, I was able to prepare and pray, and it made all the difference in the world. I mean, all of a sudden, I became calm. I decided that I just wanted to ask God that I wouldn't sin, that it would be a relaxing night, even if the chili did not turn out, and that we would be a blessing to this couple that meant so much to us. That's all I wanted to happen. And I'm here to tell you this because, frankly, I didn't want to stand here and be a big fat broad, which is what I was a week ago. I was like, blah, 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 you know, <laughs> instead of, okay, don't worry about anything, pray about everything. And uh, that's what happened. But I had to fight and had to pray to get there. But I can confidently tell you that if you pray, God will take your worry away, but you have to fight. You can't just go, hey, make me not worried. It has to become okay if it doesn't work out. It's still going to be okay. They may not care for dinner anymore, but they're still going <laughs> to, they're not going to say we're not Christians or something. So I tried. And you know what? Frankly, I was really actually way more scared that God was going to say to me, you are distracted by many things. And he was going to be whispering in my ear as I sat next to Al Mulder, you know, eating my chili going, oh, you like it. You know, um, I was sitting next to him and I was just like, I do not want Jesus to say, oh, Carlin, Carlin, you are anxious and worried about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. I would have been an abject failure right now. But I want to tell you that prayer makes a difference. And it does take away your anxiety and gives you real peace. And you might say, well, that's great for you because you don't have anything hard happening. You're like, so what? You had Al Mohler dinner, whatever. It's not like the end of the world. I have so many more hard things. And I'm sure you do. And I have in the past before. I get it. Can I just be a sister, a friend, and sit down next to you and say for a minute, I know you say it doesn't work, but can I ask you a couple questions about how you approach God? 
Um, when you pray, are you running into him like he's a vending machine that you plug in, you know, B27 and the ding-dongs fall out and you get exactly what you expected from him? Or do you remember that you are a follower of Christ and that you belong to him? So he gets to decide what you get. You can give him all your concerns and you can ask him for what you want, but sometimes he gives you things you didn't ask for. They will end up being the best for you because he will work them out for good and you will be more useful, but he gets to be in charge and he gets to be sovereign and he gets to decide. I love what Chuck Swindoll says. He said, nothing touches me that has not passed through the hands of my heavenly father. Nothing touches me that hasn't passed through the hands of my heavenly father. Whatever you end up facing, whether it's sweet relief or even worse challenge, God was not surprised and he's sitting next to you, leave your worries at his throne and stay there until he gives you peace. Um, the first verse of what a friend we have in Jesus says it perfectly. It says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer take it, whatever it is, to him. Now, there is a last critical element of prayer that we skipped over. It says we're supposed to pray, make supplication, share requests with thanksgiving. And I have to tell you, if you're anything like me, thanks is not the first thing you think of when you're worried. When you're stressed out, are you going, oh, thank you, God? No, you're not. It just it isn't, doesn't seem to make a connection in your mind, but it should. Because when we think about thanking God, we're remembering his faithfulness in the past. And it reminds us that he will be faithful in the future, even with the things we're asking him for. We need to acknowledge his faithfulness in our prayer time as well. Now, recently, I, I have to say I was convicted that I'm just not as thankful as I should be. I know we did that retreat on it, and yes, I do my thankful journal and all that. But what I realized is I pray for a lot of things, for a lot of people, even for people in this room, and God actually answers my prayers even no flu, right? That prayer that was answered this last week. Okay, he answers a lot of prayers for me. And what I realized is I'm not doubling back to say thank you to him for the answers to prayer. I may be thank you, thank you, thank you, but I'm not going back to say thank you for the answers he gave me. It sounds so stupid, but it, it just, I don't know why. It just wasn't happening. So I asked some people to pray for that. And I started a note in my phone because I don't know about you, but I don't have stuff with me all the time. But that's one thing I know is always going to be with me. So all I did, my, it just literally says answers to prayer. And then I write a date and I just start listing things that people tell me. Because you know what I used to do? I'd go up to you and I'd go, oh, Debbie, what a great answer to prayer. Thanks, God. But I never went, thanks, God. I just never took the time to do it. So now I take that list and I do my thankful journal and I ponder those things that I've already, you know, typed in, or sometimes I even open the note to think about what he answered and just acknowledging what he's done for me. I've only done it for a few months and I have like over 300 answers to prayer already, which only makes me want to pray more, you know, because look what he's doing. So thankfulness is super important. And if we pray, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, that a peaceful heart will be yours. And it'll be a peace that overwhelms you, a peace that you can't even explain. And those of you that have been through really hard things, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you could get up here and you could say, I don't know how to tell you what happened to me when I was going through this horrible thing, but the peace, I, I, 
I just, I don't even get it. I, I, words can't even express what this peace is like because it's a peace that surpasses our understanding. It's overwhelming. In John 14, 27, he says, I leave you peace, not as the world gives. So don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Don't let fear rule in your hearts. Throw your worries in his lap. Cast your anxieties on him. That's what 1 Peter 5, 7 says to do. And then Philippians 4 says, that peace will guard your heart and mind. That is the picture of a soldier a soldier who is standing at attention beside you, who never leaves, never sleeps, and is always keeping watch. That's what that word means. The peace that he gives you will stand right next to you. No matter what changes or doesn't change, he can give you peace. Now, I have to tell you that there's another great example in your Bible, and this time it's Daniel. Going to God with our worries and sitting there to get peace. Daniel did it. I'd like you to turn to Daniel 6 with me. And while you're turning there, I want you to know that people who pray are people at peace. People who pray are people at peace. And Daniel is a great example of it. In Daniel 6, remember he's been promoted to the first ruler underneath the king. Remember that? And what happens is his colleagues are not very happy. They're very jealous of him. And so they start digging through his life trying to find something that he did wrong. You remember that story? Daniel's a hero, right? They dug and investigated and they couldn't find anything. So they said, we're going to mess up his relationship with God. We'll find something there that we can pin him with. And so they decide that they're going to talk the king into making a law that says you can't pray to anybody but the king for one month. Because they know it's going to mess Daniel up. Do you realize this whole thing about the lion's den was about prayer? Isn't that interesting? You couldn't pray to anybody but this king or you get thrown to the lions. It's all about prayer. And in verse 10, Daniel 6, it doesn't say he freaked out. It doesn't say that he tried to find a loophole or he began to start a petition to get the law repealed. No. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed. Okay, this is the one that forbid anyone to pray. When he do, knew it had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. The most terrifying moment of his life, he goes to God in prayer. He doesn't even go to his prayer closet. He goes where everyone can see him. And he does what he did as usual, what he'd always done, and he prayed. And I love the little tidbit at the end of verse 10. Did you catch it? He says he also gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Dude, the guy's my hero. Like, yeah, he prayed and he thanked God. Don't you love that? It's awesome. When you and I are facing a lion's den, we need to pull a Daniel, a Daniel 6 specifically. Don't be anxious about anything. Pray about everything. That's what Daniel would tell you to do. That's what Paul would do, tell you to do. And the result is the same. Peace, overwhelming, fill in the cracks of your life, peace. And by the way, I'm sure Daniel was praying and at peace all night long in the lion's den. Guess who wasn't? The king. If you know the story, the king is up all night, distraught, worried about his buddy, Daniel. 
Talk about Philippians 4, 6, and 7 in real life. Can you see it right there? Yeah. So what do we do? What do we do to maintain a peaceful heart? If you didn't get this, you haven't been paying attention. You pray, and you pray, and you pray. And you pray. You keep praying. And I mean it. You sit down in your prayer closet. You write in your prayer journal. You say it out loud. You're on your face. I don't know. You go for a walk. You pray. I mean, really pray and keep doing it. And while you're praying, think about who it is you're talking to. It's not your best friend. It's the king of the universe. I mean, have some respect for who he is. If you don't know what the attributes of God are, open up your partner's manual. Get your copy of Knowledge of the Holy off the shelf and remember who it is you're talking to. Marinate in who he is, in his attributes, as you're talking to him. Don't cry, complain, and say, gimme, 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 gimme. Acknowledge the one you're speaking to and be grateful for what he's done for you as you pray and you express your needs to him. And the mind-blowing peace of God is going to be yours. I promise you, it will be. Isaiah 26.3 says this, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. There is no better way to have your mind stayed on God than to be going to him and praying when you're worried. There was once a king who wanted the main hall of his palace to have a beautiful piece of art in it that would depict peace. Because that's what he said he wanted his kingdom to be all about. So when he remodeled his kingdom, he decided that uh, he would have a contest and let all the artists in the land paint a picture of peace. The one who won, of course, would be hanging in this main hall and would get some money from the king. Well, artists from all over came and they submitted their peace pieces and, uh, until the day when they decided to do the big reveal. They were all covered up, and one by one, they would take off the covering, and they would show these artistic works. And, you know, people would cheer and clap and yay and yay. And the tension was building until finally there was only two pieces left. And one of them was uncovered, and it was a painting of a majestic lake. It was tranquil and quiet and perfect, so perfect that you could see these lush green hills that were reflected in the mirror of the lake. You could see the bright blue sky reflected in the lake as well with the, the white puffy clouds. There were wildflowers, beautiful colored wildflowers along the edges of the lake. And there was even a, a flock of sheep that was peacefully and, and undisturbed. They were standing there in this grassy field along the lake. And everyone was sure that that, that was the one. That was the one. But then the king himself uncovered the last piece. The crowd gasped. Is this what peace really was? It was a tall mountain cliff. It was rugged. It was sheer. It was a rock face. But there were small trees living along the side of this rock face. There was also a gigantic, just fierce waterfall going over this rock face, tumbling down to the rocks below. It was almost like you could feel the spray of this powerful waterfall. The sky was dark, and ominous clouds were there. There was lightning in the back that you could see far away in the distance. And there were trees, like I said, sticking out with their, their roots kind of stuck into the side of the cliff just barely hanging on. There was these little broken-looking trees. But in one of those trees, there was a bird. And that bird was sitting on a nest that he had made, 
content, quiet, sitting on some eggs with his eyes closed and his wings spread out. They were, this bird was at perfect peace, completely tranquil in the midst of this violent scene. For those of us who are followers of Christ here, the peace you possess is the peace that that little bird has. Because God is your peace, right? No matter what difficulty, you can sit there like that little bird. It has been said that peace is the absence of conflict. But we Christians know that's not true. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of God in whatever you face. That's what peace is. He can give us peace with him, peace with others, and peace within. Really, all we have to do is reach out and grab it. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the amazing and perfect offer of peace with you that you give us that we are even called your children. And we've said it before, but really, if we got nothing else in this life, we should be at peace in our hearts. If we had no food, if we had no family, even if we had no Bible, if we were your kids, we can be at peace. Thank you so much, Lord, even for the journey through peace. I know it was so eye-opening to me as I studied it, the journey of being at peace with you and living a holy life and the journey of working hard to be at peace with each other. And then for me, the culmination of that is maintaining a peaceful heart no matter what I face. I pray for my sisters here that they would, even if the waterfall is rushing by them and so powerful and strong and the storm is right over the horizon, God, I do pray for them. Please, God, be kind to them and help them to be like that little bird who's got her eyes closed and her wings spread out over her young and who's completely quiet and at peace. Lord, we thank you that peace is not the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of you. And uh, I do pray for those here who don't have peace with you, initial peace, of course, but also those that don't even have peace in one of these other areas. I do pray that they would be bold enough even to grab a sister right now and say, would you pray for me? Would you pray with me? I need peace in one of these areas. I don't need to go into detail, but would you sit here and pray with me? Lord, if that needs to happen, I pray that it would. And we're so grateful for your spirit. And I'm so thankful, and I can't wait to learn about the next three next time. Please bring these sisters back and many, many more to learn of the great gifts you've given us from your spirit, of the fruit of the spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.